Do you care about people? What about family and friends? Neighbors and co-workers? I know that you do. I know that we are people that care about people. And when we think about those people, whether it's family or friends or neighbors or co-workers, as we consider those groups, let me ask, among those groups of people that we do care about, are any of them lost? Are any of them right now, if they were to die this evening, heading for an eternity in hell? If they are, then the fact that we care about people motivates us to want to get the message of God's saving gospel to them. And yet, for one reason or another, oftentimes we put that off. We all want to be evangelists. We all want to get the gospel out. We all want to talk to people about the Bible, about what Jesus has done with them. But for some reason, we procrastinate or we, we, we think that now is just not the right time. And so we put that off. And what I want us to talk about tonight is getting around to personal evangelism. What is it going to take for us as individuals and as a congregation to get around to personal evangelism, to, to be doing it? And I want to talk about six things and six attitudes that we need to have that will help us get around to personal evangelism. Before we do that, would you bow with me, please? Glorious Father in heaven, we love you, and we are so thankful that you have loved us. We're thankful that you have cared about us and sent your Son to die for us. And we pray that you would strengthen us to overcome our fears and our reservations, that we might get the message of your gospel out to others. Help us to be a teaching congregation. Help us to be an evangelizing congregation. And help each of us individually to overcome our fears and reservations individually, to start talking about your word and inviting people to worship with us and to attend our classes and to study with us and to talk about your Son and your word. Father, we're thankful that you allow us to be a part of your plan, and we pray that you would strengthen us and build us up in this battle that we might overcome the tempter, that we can honor and glorify you, bringing people into your fold, into your family. Thank you so much, Father. Through your Son we pray. Amen. The very first attitude is what we've already mentioned. If we want to get around to personal evangelism, we have to care about people. We have to see people not just as they are physically, but we need to see them spiritually. I don't know if you remember when Ken Craig was here with us and he talked about the, the plan of redemption. He talked about the plan that he uses to talk to folks about the Word of God. Remember he referred to the sixth sense? You remember the little kid that said he sees dead people? Well, that's exactly what we need to be able to see. We need to see dead people. Folks who are dead in their sins, they don't know they're dead. But we know that if they're not in Christ, they're dead. We have got to see that. And we have got to care about that more than we care about anything else. If we found out that they had cancer, we would care. If we found out that they had diabetes or heart problems, we would care. What about when we find out that they have soul problems before our Lord and that they're headed for eternal damnation, we have got to care about people and where they're going eternally. In Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, and verse 37 and 38, it says that Jesus said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of harvest to send out workers into His harvest. Jesus recognized that there's a, there's a great harvest out there, and what that harvest needs is workers. But what motivated Him to see that need? 
If we back up to verse 36, it says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. What caused Jesus to want to get the workers out in the field? It was the compassion that He had for those people. He saw their spiritual needs and He cared about them. In Luke chapter 15 and verse 20, we see this compassion illustrated. In Luke 15 and verse 20, in the story of the prodigal son, he's left his home, he squandered all that his father gave him, he came to his senses, and he's now on his way back home and he wants to beg that his father might just allow him to be a servant in his household. But in Luke 15 and verse 20, he got up, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This compassion, this care, this concern, this is the attitude of heart that looks down and sees the great sorrow and suffering and need and is motivated to do something about it. It's not just pity. It's not just I feel sorry for them, but rather I am so moved by the compassion that I am going to do something about it. And that's what we have to have. If we're going to get around to personal evangelism, we have got to care for people and we've got to care for their souls and their eternal destination more than we care about anything else. Keep in mind that on Judgment Day, there's not any of the other concerns that we have about our relationships that are going to matter to us other than whether or not those people we cared about are going to be allowed to enter because they entered Jesus Christ. We have got to care about people. The second thing that we have to do is we've got to fear God. We have to realize that this issue of what we're doing, if we're holding the gospel into ourselves, we're also preparing for our own judgment. And God has chosen to use us as His tools. He has chosen to limit Himself. He's not going around just saving people. He expects us to be the tools by which that's going to be accomplished. And we have got to fear God and fear our own judgment. As we recognized this morning about baptism, we don't just get baptized and then it's over. We now have to grow spiritually. And part of that is getting that gospel out. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, actually let's begin in verse 9. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. Paul says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men when we have this healthy fear of God and of the judgment that He will offer. Then we'll be about the business of persuading men, getting that gospel out, talking to them, inviting them to come worship with us, and inviting them to our classes, doing whatever we can, wherever we are, doing the things that help save folks. But we've got to care about people and we've got to fear God. We are going to face God in judgment one day. And on that day, He's not going to ask us about what kind of house we lived in. He's not going to ask us about what kind of car we drove. He's not going to ask us about what kind of clothes we wear. But one of the things He is going to be concerned about is, did we share His gospel? Did we work to persuade others? Did we work to draw folks in so that they might be saved? So that they might have their sins forgiven? Did we plant and water the seed? 
We've got to care about people. We have to fear God. The third thing, we have to know what our job is. And this is important. We have to know what our job is. I don't know how many things and ideas get tossed about and folks will say, oh, that doesn't work. We tried that years ago and it didn't work. Or I know somebody who tried that somewhere and it didn't work. And what they mean by that is they didn't get a whole lot of baptisms out of it. And because they don't know what their job really is, a lot of ideas that come up to get that gospel spread, to get that seed planted and watered, get pushed by the wayside all through the beginning. And the reason is they don't know what our job is. We have to understand, our job is not to convert people. Did you realize that? Our job is not to baptize people. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Our job is not to cause the growth. Our job is to plant and water the seed. It is God's job to cause the growth. It is God's job through His Word to work in the hearts of men to cause conversion. And then we'll baptize those folks who want to become a child of God. But it's not our job to convert people. It's our job to plant and water the seed. And far too often we judge whether or not something has worked based on how many baptisms there were. Far too often we have decided that something was successful based on how many conversions there were. But that's not our job. Our job is to plant and water. And we've got to start thinking like that. A work was successful because the seed was planted or watered. We have done our job. We have reached our goal when we have planted and watered the seed. And as we continue to water, wherever opportunity arises, I want you to think about this. It can be very discouraging. Perhaps you invited 50 people to come to assemblies with you, and only few showed up, and then they only came once. And after a while, you might decide, oh, this inviting people to come to church with us, just that, that doesn't work. I'm going to quit doing that. But actually, you were successful. You planted the seed 50 times. And two of those times, that seed got dug a little further because they showed up. It wasn't unsuccessful just because they never got baptized. You did your job. You did your work. You accomplished your goal. You were involved in getting that word out there and planting and watering. And you were successful. So we have got to start thinking like that. When you invite somebody to our assemblies or our classes, don't wait to see if they show up to see if you were successful. You were successful because you did what God wanted you to do. If you have a Bible study with somebody, don't wait to see if they're going to be baptized and decide whether or not it was successful and effective. You did your job. You were successful. You taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. If folks attend our assemblies, don't wait to see them converted to decide whether or not it was successful. It was successful. We did our job. And I've realized in the past couple of weeks as I, as I thought about this very same concept, I know that typically when I think about goals in the congregation, I think about how many baptisms I want us to have within the next year. But I've come to realize that that's really not the goal that we should be thinking about. 
Instead of thinking about we want ten baptisms in this year, what we really should be thinking about is we want ten more people who are going to be actively trying to get folks to read the Bible with them. I'll tell you, if we actually started thinking about that, about, about having ten more people within the congregation who are reading their Bibles with other folks, do you think baptisms might follow? I think they probably would. But we have to know what our job is. When we constantly think that our job is getting somebody baptized, all we're doing is working to discourage ourselves because Jesus has already said only few are going to follow the path. No matter how much work we do, in the end there's only going to be a small number of people that decide to serve the Lord. And so we're setting ourselves up for discouragement and defeat if we're banking on baptisms as equaling success. But when we realize that we've been successful and we've accomplished our job when we've taught, when we've invited, when we've encouraged, when we've planted, and when we've watered, then we can be successful 100% of the time. Again, think about this. If you had 50 Bible studies and only one of them got, only one of the contacts was baptized, how much success did you have? Only half a percent? No, you had 100% success because you taught the gospel to 50 people. Could you imagine that? That's, that's a, actually, I guess that would be 2%, wouldn't it? One of 50 would be 2%. I got these accountants all writing it down saying, oh, he got that wrong. But you're actually successful 100% of the time because you taught. And that's the key. We have to know exactly what our job is. The third, or fourth thing that we have to do is that we need to have a plan. Evangelism rarely happens on accident. And by plan here, the congregation needs to have plans, and we've developed that. In fact, we just had a training meeting just a few moments ago regarding our guest evangelism plan. I forgot to announce it this morning. Four people showed up, but we appreciate those four people. And I apologize to the rest of you for forgetting to announce it this morning. But if you have any questions about your place in that plan, just come see me, and we'll talk about that. But we have some plans here, and we need to have more plans. But you as an individual need to have a plan. Who are you going to talk to? How are you going to talk to them? How are you going to bring it up? Who are you going to, are you going to buy it? When and how? What are you going to say? Far too often we don't think about, well, what do I need to say in this invitation? I know I need to invite them, but I never think about how. And so the opportunity arises, and since I've never thought about how, oh, I'll have to do that later. So we need to go ahead and have the plan. Paul had a plan in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we see that Paul had plans. Beginning in verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, this is 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I know it's subtle, but pay attention to what's happening here. Paul has recognized that different people have different backgrounds and it's going to take different things to help talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he's thought through that. He's thought through what he has to do if he's talking to a Jew. He's thought through what he has to do if he's talking to a Gentile. He's thought through what he has to do if he's talking to somebody who is weak. He's thought through what he's got to talk, how he's going to deal with somebody who's been under the law and somebody who hasn't. He's thought through those things and recognized that he's going to have to act and work in different ways. He had a plan. 
And we've got to have a plan. Think about when he would travel into different cities. He had a plan about what he was going to do in those cities. If you turn to Acts chapter 13 and verse 5, we see him do the same thing every city he goes to. In verse 5, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of the God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. We look down in verse 14. Going on from Perga, they arrived at the city in Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Every place Paul goes, we see the first thing he did is he went to the synagogue, and he started working the synagogue. When those folks rejected him, he would go out and start teaching the Gentiles. He had a plan of how he was going to evangelize every city that he went to. He had a plan. We need to have a plan. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15 says, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. What do we see there? We have to make the, make the most of our time. We have to redeem that time. That, that means planning. That means purposing how we're going to do what we're going to do. It's not just flying by the seat of our pants and doing whatever comes to mind at the time. It's having a plan. And even when Paul taught, even when Paul taught, if you look in Acts 17, I think you recognize that Paul had a plan about how he was going to teach. In Acts chapter 17, on Mars Hill, beginning in verse 22, Paul said, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now, of course, at this point, they kind of rose up and, and thought it was a little ridiculous about this being raised from the dead. But if you look at this lesson, you see He had a plan. He had formulated a plan in His mind. He started with a hook. He said, I've seen all your religious icons, and I noticed one that said, To the unknown God, I want to talk to you about that one. So He drew them in. Then He moved to talk about the characteristics of that God, causing Him to be able to point out to them that, look, this, all these stones and things that we have made, man has made, that can't be God. Because consider the nature of God. And then he moved to talk about the plan of salvation. He talked about the fact that they have to repent. Now, I know that before he finished that, they made him stop. But you see, you can't help but see there was a plan. There was a progression. And so we need to think about that. How are we going to get the message out? But once we have the opportunity to talk to somebody about the message, how are we going to do it? We have to have a plan. I'm not here to tell you what your plan has to be. Your plan might be different from me. You have a different background. You have a different knowledge. You might be able to uh, do some different kinds of studies or, or talk with folks about different things. Your plan doesn't have to be my plan, so long as all our plans are scriptural. But we just have to think, what are we going to do? Who am I going to invite? What am I going to say to him when I invite him? Who am I going to talk to about possibly getting together to study? Well, if we study, what are we going to do? 
We've got to have a plan. I'll tell you something that I've been working on. I've mentioned it several times, and I, I'm just absolutely certain that it's, it's going to work because how could it not work? Because remember what our job is to talk to people about the Scripture. What if, instead of thinking that we had to do this just all-amazing five-lesson plan that's going to get everybody saved, what if we just talked to folks about, hey, would you like to read the Bible? Would you be interested in reading the Bible with us? You read your Bible much? If they say no, you say, hey, you know what? A great way to learn about Christianity would be to read about its founder. You know, would you like to get together with me and just read one of the Gospels? Mark, it's the shortest Gospel. We could get together, read two chapters, and uh, just talk about it and see what we can learn. If they say, oh yeah, I love to read my Bible. Well, great. Would you love to get together and read the Bible with me? We could read maybe one of the Gospels. How about Mark? Or you could do one of the others. It doesn't matter to me. But just having a plan. I'll tell you what. Just a few weeks ago, Dan King came up to me and said that he, he actually tried that with somebody. Were you able to meet with her yet, Dan? We talked. I'll, I'll tell you, I don't know if they've gotten to meet yet, but here's the thing. He said, would you be interested in reading the Bible with me? And she said, actually with him and Tina, she said, yes. I don't know if they're ever going to get together again. Who knows? That, that may happen. It may not. But he took the step. They took the step. And it wasn't, was that hard to do, Dan? Pretty easy. See? It's, it's, it's very easy. There's a plan. That, that may not be the one that fits your needs. I don't know. But just have some kind of plan. Have some kind of plan. Because evangelism doesn't happen accidentally. And I'm afraid that for most of us, what happens is we all want to do it, but we have no plan, so we keep putting off getting started at it. If we're going to get around to evangelism, we have to have a plan. Further, we've got to seek and seize the opportunities. We have to seek and seize the opportunities. That's why it's so important to have a plan, because when you have a plan, opportunities come up. And when the opportunities come up, you already know what you're going to do. And it just becomes a lot easier. In fact, I'll just tell you. I'm just going to use Dan and Tina again. We had talked about this in class, this issue of just asking folks if they wanted to read the Bible. And the way this opportunity came up, if I understand it right, this woman was going around the neighborhood inviting people to come to her church for their coffee Sunday or whatever they were doing. In fact, I think she said, you know, we're going to have coffee and we're going to have this and that. We're not going to have any boring preaching. Uh, but, uh, and so there was an opportunity. And what did he have? He had a plan. And so he asked, would you be interested in getting together and reading the Bible? You, re- you read the Bible much? Yeah, I love to read the Bible. Would you be interested in getting together and read with us? There was an opportunity. What would have happened if that idea of how to get into that study had never entered our minds? Well, there would have been an opportunity but nothing would have happened because there would have been no plan. So we have the plan that helps us seek and seize opportunities. Look in John chapter 4 to demonstrate how amazing this is. In John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling through Samaria. According to verse 5, they came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So he's been traveling. He's tired. He's apparently hungry because in verse 8, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So he's got all these distracting things going on. He's worn out. He's hungry. And along comes this woman to get some water. But Jesus doesn't just see some Samaritan woman who's getting water. He sees an opportunity. 
And he developed a plan. He said, hey, can you, know, can you get me something to drink? And we know what happened as he talked to her. But here's what's amazing. He talked with her and her, their conversation caused her to go back into the city and call a whole bunch of people out. And in verse 39 through 40 it says, From that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So that when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. And so we see that Jesus, because he saw this opportunity and he planted and watered the seed, it did bear fruit. And lots of people from the city became his disciples. But the one thing that I find most intriguing is that the disciples had all gone into the city and they all came out of the city and not one single person in that city heard anything about Jesus while they were there. Why? What was the difference? Jesus was seeking and seizing opportunities. The apostles were too intent on getting some food. So they walked into the city that was white for harvest and not one single thing happened. But Jesus saw one woman who came out of the city and that led to numerous disciples from that city. Do you see the difference there? If we're so distracted in our intent for food and clothing and so many things from this world, we're going to be passing opportunities right and left. When there may have just been that one person that we could talk to. And who knows all the fruit that could have come from it. We've got to seek and seize the opportunities that are presented to us. And I point out seek... Because usually opportunities come to those who are looking for them. And the final thing that I want to point out to you is that you've got to do something. I don't care what your plan is. I've got some lessons I could show you to teach. I've got some approaches. You can do this. Do you want to read the Bible thing? We could do that lesson that Ken Craig taught us last year, two years ago, however long it's been now. It doesn't matter to me what your plan is as long as it's scriptural. But do something. Do something. If it's just leaving an invitation card with your tip at a restaurant, if it's dropping an invitation card in the canister when you go make your deposit at the bank, do something. Somebody asks you, how was your weekend? Say, it was great. I got to go meet with the Franklin Church. We worshiped God. We prayed. We learned about baptism and what it doesn't do. Somebody says, how's your day going? It is going wonderful. I got up this morning. I read my Bible and I read from Matthew chapter 5 or, or whatever. Just do something. I think about the parable of the talents. And the one talent man who thought, I, I can't do anything. And so he didn't. He hid his talent in the ground. He buried it. And then when the master came, he just went and dug it up and gave it back to him. And what the master essentially says to him is you should have just at least done something. You know, the reality is you and I may not ever baptize one single soul. Remember, only few are going to follow. We may not ever baptize anybody. But we're not going to stand before God in judgment based on how many folks we ever baptize. 
But we are going to stand before God in judgment based on what we did with this gospel He's given to us. And I hope that we can all stand before God and at least say, I did something. What will we be able to say to the Lord when He asks us, what did you do? Will we be able to say, I invited folks. I know nobody came, Lord, but I invited folks. Will we be able to say, look, I knocked on their doors and tried to get folks to read the Bible with me? Nobody would do it, Lord, but I tried. I did something. We'll be able to say, look, I talked with the folks at work about the gospel. I talked to them about those spiritual things. I tried to bring up spiritual discussion. Maybe nobody listened, Lord, but I did something. That's We have got to do something. Because when we've done something, then we've done our job. And we can let God cause the growth. And brethren, I'm absolutely convinced that if we're doing something, God will cause the growth. And so what are we doing? I remember one time when I was a kid walking into the store and my dad handed me this little thing. It was a little circle. And on it, it had the letters T-U-I-T. It was a round to it. How many things do we say, I'm going to do that when I get around to it? Well, we need to get around to it now and start getting that gospel out. Doing whatever you can do. If you don't feel comfortable having a Bible study in your home, that's fine. But do something. Do something. And you'll grow out.